Join the big show Friday from 3 to 6 at the Warehouse, 1967 South, 300 West in Salt Lake City. Price is so low, it'll blow your mind. Time right now to talk a little USF BYU football with Matt Merchell, National College football writer for the Orlando Sentinel. He covers USF. He joins us on the Sprint Special guest line. Get $100 off the redesigned Apple Watch 4 with a new line of service. Visit the local Sprint store near you. Matt, good morning. Good morning. How are you guys doing today? We're doing all right. So, we're trying to follow South Florida and figure out how good they are. You see them a lot more than we do. How good are they? Uh, well, it's, it's definitely been a, an interesting year. I think these two teams going into this week are, are very similar, uh, how things have kind of gone in, in a way. You know, USF came into the season a lot of expectations. People thought they could contend, you know, uh, in, in the uh, American East and maybe possibly knock off UCF. Uh, but things haven't started out that way, you know. I mean, and they've struggled. They've struggled offensively early on. They've struggled uh, trying to identify a quarterback. Uh, this is a team that now has a lot of que- more question marks than it did have going into the season. And, and you know, they made a change at quarterback. They brought in a number two guy and freshman Jordan McLeod. And uh, they're trying to find ways to kind of bounce back after what was been a rough start. And I think, uh, to me, it, it, it's, it's a, uh, it was a difficult question to figure out just how good this team is. Because I don't think we've seen them play a, a really good game yet so far this season. So last year they get off to a really good start, right? And they're running back, uh, what's his name, Knight. He was averaging yeah. like seven-plus yards a game. Then they go in the stretch where, what was it, the last six they lose. And his production has been cut, was cut in half. And then this year, what do they, they, they lose their first two. His production isn't nearly as good as it was in the beginning of last season. BYU struggled to stop the run. What's going on with... The, uh, the Bulls' running game, and what can we expect? Well, I think that's been the, the issue right now. You know, this is a team that I, I think was trying to figure out what kind of offense they wanted to be. You know, I know they brought in, you know, Kerwin Bell uh, to be their new offensive coordinator this year. You know, he did some good things over at Valdosta State, you know, an FCS school uh, where they were averaging over 50 points a game. And, you know, people thought this would be one of those dynamic type of offenses. and It hasn't happened. And part of that's been that running game. You know, they haven't been able to get the running game going. Uh, they haven't been able to take advantage of of, you know that ground game. I think the offensive line at points has had, has had some issues as well, and I think that's something that you know it's definitely got to be concerned. Now, you look at what Cronkite did last week. You know he had over 20 carries for 148 yards. Looked like kind of a return to his, his former self. I think that's got to be an encouraging sign for USF because that's something they need to have. They need to establish some sort of balance when it comes to offense. You know I think they become one dimensional, which they were I think early on this season. I think it, you're not going to find very much success there. So I, I think for them, it's important that they get Cronkite going. It's important they continue to, you know, get their offense moving. You know, Johnny Ford was another guy who was supposed to be a dynamic playmaker out of the backfield uh, who could do, you know, not only just running the football but also catching it. Um, and he's been limited. He's been hurt and, and, and hasn't really kind of performed to the way they thought. So, um, again, that's been a big question mark, but something they feel like maybe they can get a little bit of, of – you know, maybe some momentum going after last week against UConn. So throwing a freshman quarterback in there with an iffy running game sounds like uh, a little bit of roll of the dice. Just looking at Jordan McLeod's stats, uh, the completion percentage probably isn't what people are hoping for, but, man, he seems to make big plays, seven touchdown passes already, but four interceptions. Does he get baited into bad throws? He forced the ball. What's going on with him? 
Yeah, you know, I, I think that's that's the other thing. When you're when you're a true freshman, it's it sometimes can be difficult. You know, you get into spots where you know make some good, make some great throws, and then you try to do a little bit too much. You know, and I think that's maybe what you saw a little bit about that. I mean, listen, you know, his his best performance, so to speak, was against you know an FCS school in South Carolina State. Uh, you know, and you look at the fact that you know against UConn, which is not really one of the better programs in the country. You know, he still threw two interceptions. I think he had some bad decision-making along there as well. Uh, the one thing he does bring is he, is he does have the ability to run the football as well. He does have some, some mobility, and I think that's something that they've been able to take advantage of. You know, he's got three rushing touchdowns so far this season. I think that's something they'd like to bring in as well. Uh, again, young quarterback, a guy who's going to have to go through some growing pains and some, a guy that they hope maybe eventually will kind of calm down and, and be able to step into that role. It's not probably how they wanted to – to throw him into the mix, I think they thought Blake Barnett was going to be the guy, based on what Blake did last year. But you know, with some injuries and the performance so far, they went with this move because they felt like he gives them maybe Jordan gives them maybe the best chance to to, to get the offense moving, and that's and that's been one of their weakest points, especially starting out, is that they just can't get this offense going. You saw their struggles in the first couple of weeks, you know, against Wisconsin and Georgia Tech. So as of right now, they they they're playing a little bit better on offense, but it's always more room for improvement that's needed. So they closed last season defensively, allowing an average of close to 40 points at the, during the big losing streak. And some teams have put up some decent numbers against them this year. But BYU is going to start a quarterback who's even less experienced than the Bulls kid because Jaron Hall, this is going to be his first start. And it's really his first playing time any of uh, note, certainly, at quarterback. He got a few snaps here and there. So I'm real intrigued on how the defense – of South Florida is going to do. It hasn't been stellar, but yet they're going up against a quarterback that has no history whatsoever, which I guess maybe that could be a little bit dangerous for the Bulls, not knowing what to expect. But should we expect a better defensive effort? Yeah, I think what they're going to try to do is they're going to try to put pressure on them. I think they—it's they, almost like I said—you you almost have like a mirror image of BYU in a sense. If you're if you're South Florida, you can look at the fact that you know you started a true freshman and you know you see what some of the struggles maybe he's had, and you can say, listen, we got to try to do the same sort of thing. I will I will say that I agree with you in the sense that when you bring in a new quarterback and a guy who doesn't have a lot of film, you know, we're not talking a lot of college film. It's going to be a little harder defensively. I think this defense is going to have to make adjustments as the game goes on because they're not sure exactly what they're going to get from them. And I think they need to go out and kind of take a look at them and, and see maybe what some of the things they're trying to do. They also want to see what BYU is going to try to do with them. I don't think they're going to go out there and throw the full array of, of, of offense, you know, unless they feel like he can really kind of just grasp it and go out there and do it. So. I think this is going to be kind of a learning on the go. I think if I'm South Florida, you obviously want to apply a lot of pressure. You want to make sure that you can get to get to the quarterback. You got to make sure you become disruptive. Uh, you know, one of the things they've done really well so far this season on defense is they've forced a lot of fumbles. They got to continue to try to strip the ball away. They've also got to try to make sure that they can get enough of, of negative pressure, negative plays on him that maybe he'll throw an interception here or there. Maybe he'll get a little bit pressure too much and he'll throw a pick right there as well. So that's something they're hoping on. You know, they lead the American, you know, in, in turnovers uh, takeaways with 14. So they're a team that likes to be able to do that. So I think they want to continue that kind of trend, try to force some mistakes early on, and then, you know, try to take advantage of that. If you can get a mistake deep in, in, in territory, you know, and flip the field quicker, I think that's going to be only good news for South Florida on their offense, especially with a younger guy and an offense that's trying to, to bounce back a little bit. So 
I think that's what they'd like to see happen, and they feel like they can do that. Plus the fact you look at the fact that BYU has issues with running the football as well. So if you could stop the run, force BYU to become one-dimensional, I think it only works in your favor. Matt Merchell joining us. He's a national college football writer for the Orlando Sentinel. He covers USF. They're hosting BYU this weekend. So you get two inexperienced quarterbacks out there. You can make their life harder by taking a penalty and putting them at terrible down and distance. But you can make their life easier with a penalty that extends the drive, gets them out of a third down, gets them a first down. South Florida averaging nine penalties a game. Has there been any particular trend, one area, you know, a lot of pass interference or a lot of procedural stuff? Because nine penalties is too many. <laughs> yeah, I think a lot of it's procedural when you look at things. I think you look at the idea that, that you know, again, an offense that's struggling – Sometimes guys try to do a little bit too much. Guys want to get a literally jump on the thing, uh, jump on the ball. You know, I, I don't. I, I think this is a team. Like I said, this is what what's interesting about the South Florida team is this is a team that people thought would step right in and have enough experience to be able to take advantage of you know a, a lot of this and, and avoid these mistakes early on. But instead, it's been almost like a team that you're dealing with a whole new, you know, whole new group of guys. And I think that's been the thing that stood out early on. And those penalties have definitely been something that's been a concern because. You know, you shouldn't have those when you've got experienced players. When you've got, you know, guys, upperclassmen who've played before, you shouldn't have those kind of penalties. I think some of that can be attributed, especially early on to who they played. Wisconsin, obviously, is a great defense and obviously was able to take advantage of that. But as you got deeper into this, into this you know, schedule, uh, there were opportunities there. They still made these kind of, you know, mistakes that you, you can't have. And I think that's put them back a little bit sometimes when it comes to field position and stalled some drives out as well. So I think that's got to be a concern, uh, you know, if you're Charlie strong you've got to make sure you kind of avoid those penalties because those are things that are eventually going to come back to bite you especially in close games and, and they really haven't been you know in, in, in too many close games so far this year I think maybe the Georgia Tech game is the closest but when you're in those close games penalties can be the thing that can really can doom what you're trying to do so Florida is a hotbed for recruiting everybody knows that it's one of the three states that's recognized as having great high school football I'm wondering where does South Florida fit on the hierarchy and the scale for recruits in terms of what they would be interested within the state of Florida you know South Florida's done a really good job you know one of the reasons that uh, you know because of that is the idea that you know they've hired two coaches the last two coaches they've had Willie Taggart and Charlie Strong both had deep ties to the state you know really had were, were invested in the recruiting battles here um, in the state of Florida you know Charlie spent time you know one of his stops was at you know Florida you know when he was defensive coordinator um, and I think that's kind of helped pay off for them you know they've been able to get some guys early on and establish some of those you know some of those connections especially a lot with the high school coaches in here as well he took that with him then when he went to Louisville in fact when he was at Louisville and had success a good portion of his roster was made up of Florida kids. So he's been able to do that really well, even when he got back to South Florida. Um, but it's, as you mentioned, it's a hotbed state. It's a state where there's a lot of competition. I mean, not only are you competing with the big guys with Florida, Florida State and Miami, you know, but now you look at what UCF has been able to do with the success recently. Um, that's helped, you know, that's put a lot more pressure into trying to go out there and recruit guys. I think, you know, what Charlie's tried to do is kind of lock down that Tampa area. Um, and maybe try to get a little bit down in the South Florida area as well. I think that's where you get some talent. They put together some great classes over the last couple of years, and you've seen some of that. You know, some of that payoff. I mean, you know, look at their class coming up in 2020. 16 of their of their 17 commits are from the state of Florida. So he's he's really out there trying to keep that going on. But as it gets harder and harder every year, guys, because more and more you know programs across the country are diving into Florida to try to get some of this recruiting. That's why. 
schools like you know BYU and schools like some of the other programs around the country are scheduling games maybe to come down and play for in, in Florida because some of that is just kind of appeal and see what's going on there. Um, and I think they want to kind of get their name out there when we're looking at recruiting. So um, it's it's definitely got harder, and I think Charlie's done a, a relatively good job with with doing that. Um, I think any coach they bring into that program, they've had to find someone who can recruit well because that's really the, the secret to success for when you're at a program like South Florida. You know, if I said there were a half dozen schools, uh, programs across the country that always got mentioned when realignment and Power Five opportunities came up, these would probably be two of the six. Do you hear anything? Is there anything brewing four to five years out? Do you have any level of expectations? Or is college football maybe just going to kind of sail along because everybody's making a lot of money and we're not going to have the upheaval we had last time? Well, I think right, I haven't heard much right now. I mean, I think people are kind of in that spot where everything's kind of you know, settled down a little bit. But, I mean, let's let's look around what's going on in, in college football right now, guys. I mean, college athletics in general, I mean, you're seeing, you know, a lot more going on in the sense of, of you know, uh, like a pay-for-play issue that's going on in California, for instance. You know, I think there could be some changes going on there um, and how maybe the NCAA handles things. You're seeing, you know, Power 5 schools getting more and more, you know, more and more money, you know, generated from not only just TV contracts, but rights and, and online streaming and, and things like that. And I, I think the next round of the playoff is going to be interesting. You know, when the, next, when the contract is up in 2024, 2025, it'll be interesting to see, you know, how much money is, is being generated. And I think if a, if a conference wanted to make a, a play or expand, um, you know, you mentioned it. You know, I mean, BYU's always thrown out there. I think South Florida's been mentioned, UCF. Um, some of these programs maybe that they, they can bring in uh, big viewership television eyes that can bring in, you know, the, the recruiting areas we talked about earlier. I mean, you can get those kind of areas brought in there. So I haven't heard any big move right now. But again, you know, when, when it comes down to money and if there's opportunities to make more money, uh, it'll be interesting. I think the traditional way of TV with the TV deals that they've been, I think those are going to change. I think you're going to see more and more about this idea of streaming and where can you get some of this content that can be online. And it'll be interesting to see if, if a conference like a Big 12 or, or someone else really wants to expand and they think, well, you know, we could go to maybe a, a, another division, you know, maybe like a, a 65 top team, kind of like the Power Five breaking off a little bit, and maybe they want to add a couple teams. So I haven't heard that mo- movement just yet, but, I mean, again, with, there's so much money involved in college athletics and college football. I mean, eventually you think someone's going to probably float that idea once again. Is Florida legitimate? <clears throat> yeah, Florida, the Gators? Yeah, the Gators are legitimate. The Gators are playing um, some of the best football I've seen them play. And listen, this is two or three years ago. This is a program that I kind of felt like really kind of fell, fell to the wayside when, it, you know, when they weren't playing good football at that point. I think Dan Mullen's done an amazing job. I think this is one of the best defenses I've seen, maybe since the Urban Meyer days. Um, And I think you saw a little bit of that against, you know, Auburn. I mean, I don't think Auburn was as good as people thought they were, but they played, you know, Florida's played really good defense. I think this weekend, to me, they get past LSU this this weekend. I think Florida really can make a case for being one of the top four best teams in the country because I think they've played the type of schedule they're going to play a future schedule as well with Georgia, maybe down the road, that they can continue to make that case. Now, if they lose, you know, again, I still think they're a top-10 team. I'm just not sure if they can bounce back from unless they somehow win the SEC. So why can't Miami and Florida State do what Florida's doing? I keep waiting for them to rebound. It seems like they ought to, but they don't. Yeah, you know, I I mean, again, I I think some of that is is just catching up. You know, I think in some cases, I think you look at what Florida State has tried to do. Um, You know, I think that you know, the transition from, from 
from you know Jimbo Fisher to Willie Taggart was it was a difficult one it's at times. Um, I think Florida State is trying to you know raise money you know when it comes to facilities they're trying to get better facilities. Um, I think when it comes to recruiting in the area they're trying to improve on that. That's one of the reasons why Willie was brought in because he had really strong recruiting ties to Florida. They're trying to continue to do that. Um, and, and I also think in Miami's case again you talk about coaching turmoil. They caught you about guys coming in. You know Mark Rick did a, a pretty decent job his first couple of years there, but they're trying to catch up as well. They just built a year ago their first indoor practice facility, and, and, and it took them, you know, essentially, you know, fundraising where the coach himself put a million dollars in to build the place. So uh, this is these are programs right now that are trying to catch up. They feel like the ACC network, for instance, will help generate some more revenue, which help maybe get these programs up there as well. So um, it's going to happen. I just think. You know, again, you know, football is cyclical, and I think at some point you're going to have down times, and I think these two programs are trying to find a way up. They have to because they can't let Florida get too big of a gap ahead of them. He's Matt Marcel. He's a national college football writer for the Orlando Sentinel covering USF. Matt, we appreciate it. Thanks for a few minutes. All right. Thanks a lot, guys. Take care. So what stuck with you out of that? Nothing. Nothing? <laughs> They are who we thought they were. If you want to crown them. <laughs> well, I think that as you try to analyze a game, the factor that you have to just look at and say, I'm not sure, I don't know, is Jaron Hall. I don't know. What's he going to do? Is he going to? He certainly has all the athletic ability in the world, as a lot of them do. But dropping but, a quarterback yeah, into his first yeah. college football game, you just don't know. Right. I don't I don't know. I mean, I literally have never seen him play any of any substance. You see him in spring ball, but it doesn't count as much and you see, you know, here and there. I never saw him play in high school. I don't pay a whole lot of attention to high school football. Uh, so I assume he was good. That's why. I mean, it, it, an athlete of his caliber can just dominate at the high school level because there's very few who can match his ability. And now what is he going to do? I like the fact that they've had two weeks. The, this is finally the bye came at the right time. You know, that cliche that every coach says, well, with him, they it's actually true this might year not have the extra week for him to get started and try to get him as up to speed as possible. But he's still a kid. He hasn't played. And he just – I don't know what to expect. I'm, I'm hopeful. I mean, I want to see them win. There's no doubt about that. But I don't know what to expect. I, I cannot figure it out. I have to see it. I have no body of evidence on this young man. It is intriguing to listen to Matt talk about the uh, the problems South Florida has running the ball. Do you really have any idea what happens when a team that struggles to run the ball faces a team that struggles to stop the run? Well, but yet this kid, Cronkite, did run. They, you know, they started 7-0, and and then they went 0-6, right, last season. And that's crazy. That's like two seasons in one. I don't know that I've ever seen that. I'm sure it's been out there, but nothing comes to mind. And you look at him statistically, and he was like seven, eight yards of carry when they were winning all those ball games, and then he like three between three and four when they were losing all those games. So in this year, I think he's got like 225 yards, uh, and they're what two and three mm-hmm. is that the record. So statistically, that's not good enough. What does that mean? What happened? when he was running the ball so well and were they just feasting on lousy teams and whatnot. So there's so many question marks. And since and that's a little bit of the problem, I think, with BYU's schedule. And when I say problem, I think it detracts from fan interest because when you're in a conference, 
you know, you know the guys from year to year. And sometimes they change coaches and things change dramatically. But most of the time it doesn't. So, you know, you know you got, like, the, the Utes. You know, they know Cleo Tate was injured last year. Well, they know Cleo Tate. They've seen him play 100 times, right. and they saw him play last week, and he was sensational. Well, what's he going to be like when we get to, what's it, November 23rd? You know, there's some anticipation there, and that's six, seven weeks away. Well, South Florida, you don't really have any anticipation because I'm not watching a whole lot of South Florida football. I just don't have time in my schedule to pay attention to them because we've got to watch the locals, and then we've got to watch their conference teams that they play. When Boise plays, I try to watch them because I know it's a huge game for Utah State, obviously. Same deal with San Jose State, and that's already in the rearview mirror, but you get the point. And with with Utah, you know, you're, you're trying to watch all these games that they play to draw conclusions. Well, with South Florida, you don't. So in these situations here, you get into a big mystery, and then you, you put in a new quarterback. Barnett doesn't look like he's playing, so they bring in this freshman. What does it mean? I... I can't get a handle on this game. I just don't know because I don't have any experience from which to draw. Vegas thinks BYU is going to get it done. Five and a half point favorites. I understand that. Right. But I can't really respond to that. I get it. All I I can do is say, well, they know and they're putting it out there. So I have to rely on what they know because I can't delve into South Florida deeply. Two inexperienced quarterbacks and a team that struggles to run versus a team that has struggled to stop the run. When I look at scores, you know, Wisconsin, they're going to get slaughtered by Wisconsin. Wisconsin's really, really good. We understand that. Georgia Tech isn't, but yet they beat them. Well, UConn sucks, and they turn around, of course, they beat UConn. So what do I make of that? Right. I'm, I'm running in place here as I try to analyze this game. And I think that's part of the detraction for BYU fans is you don't have a level of excitement or knowledge and anticipation. Whereas now, Utah yeah. fans have... Yeah, of course. And Utah they, State, they've yeah. got an opinion on everybody in the Pac-12, and Utah State fans have an opinion on everybody in the Mountain West, even if it's off. But it's generally not that far off because right. things aren't changing that dramatically except when Colorado goes worse to first In to a worst. sense, the most intriguing aspect of this game is Jern Hall. DJ and PK, it's 97.5 and 1280 The Zone. Lincoln Kennedy, Pac-12 Network Analyst, joins us next. DJ and PK reminding you to join Hans and Scotty Friday, October 11th from noon to 3 as Andrew Reinhardt from Wasatch Medical Clinic will be live in studio to discuss an FDA-approved breakthrough and permanent solution for ED with no pills, no surgery, and no needles. DJ and PK welcoming in Lincoln Kennedy from the Pac-12 Networks. The Raider analyst has been in London. He is back with us now on a Sprint special guest line. Lease any handset and get an iPad from $99.99. Visit the local Sprint store near you. Lincoln, good morning. Good morning, guys. I figured since the youths were on a bye, I should just take off to London for a week and <laughs> get a little R&R uh, holiday, as they call it over there. Okay. But I'm glad to be back. What's going on, guys? Well, we're curious. How was the food in London? Because I've heard it's terrible. I've heard the sites are great and the food's awful. But maybe the NFL well, team fed you, so you don't have to worry about that. You know, what, what's interesting when you go over to the for Europe, and especially the U.K., it's just that they don't they don't indulge us as much gluttony as, as we Americans do. So I, I kept it simple. I stayed with the fish and chips. I'm a big seafood lover, so you couldn't go wrong with uh, fried fish and, and french fries uh, for the most part. But other than that, um, I had a chance to go visit Dublin, which was wonderful. Uh, never been to Ireland before. It was beautiful countryside. Got a chance to see some traditional dancing and singing and a lot of the, the locals and, and hang out in pubs. And I had my first Guinness. Uh, as well as a, a whiskey tasting, Irish whiskey tasting tour. So it was a great vacation. From your perspective, what's the level of interest in the NFL over there? 
um, mark my words, I mean, I've said it before, I don't know if I said it on, on your broadcast, but um, there will be an NFL team in London uh, in, in the near future. Um, I, it's going, I don't think it's going to be an expansion. I think they're going to take an existing team and take it over there. And I think what's open, the reason why is because the, the whole Tottenham experience with the new stadium and more importantly, just the overall um, European interest in American football, there are a lot of people over there who still don't understand it. It needs to be explained. It needs to be shown to them. But there are huge opportunities because um, the Raiders have played in uh, UK three times now. And all three times when you go in the stadium, there is an overload of representation, American representation. This time for the Raiders and Bears, there were a lot of Bears jerseys in the stands. Um, and other times I've seen Dolphins, Patriots, a lot of U.S. teams represented. So I think, I think the draw is huge. And, and I think the NFL is going to be over there someday soon. You know, one of the big problems for uh, the NFL has been the cost of stadiums and the fact that you're only going to play eight preseason, ten, maybe with playoff 11, put a couple college football games in there. But you just – there aren't that many – events. Now, in Arizona, they've got a grass stadium that rolls out and leaves a concrete floor, which makes doing concerts and stuff like that a lot. Basketball games makes it a lot easier. Now, this stadium that the Raiders just played in, in this most recent game, has a a grass field and a turf field, and they can roll in and out for soccer and football. It seems like if they combine that, we're going to have a stadium in the future that could be doing football one day, soccer the next day, and a concert the third day, and suddenly a billion-dollar stadium doesn't sound like such a crazy proposition. Can you see that coming? Well, you're absolutely right. A couple weeks ago when we were in Minnesota, the first time that we had seen the new U.S. Bank Arena up there, the the people were telling us they they do anywhere from 350 to 400 events a year, and that includes major sporting events, concerts, and everything else. And I think that's going to be the big draw. As you mentioned, the, the, the Tottenham Stadium over in the U.K., yes, it does serve their their soccer team as well as professional football. And just imagine this, because I think this is the way it's going to play out. You know, uh, let's just say that because the the, the owner of of the Jaguars owns a soccer team, if he moves the Jaguars over to London, you'll have teams that'll play there for you'll you'll have the Jaguars basically hoping hosting a month of um, football games. Teams that come over there will have the bye afterwards, and then you have the Jaguars that come back to the states, as we've seen with other teams this year sort of travel around like when East Coast trips, most notably uh, the 49ers, when they had an East Coast trip, they played Tampa Bay, and then they, the next week they played uh, Cincinnati. They didn't fly back to San Francisco. They, uh, they stayed over the East Coast. They actually moved from Tampa Bay to Ohio. The Raiders did it last year when they played the two Florida teams. They just stayed down there. The NFL is opening up and showing that this can work more and more, and that's why you're eventually going to have a team over in the U.K. So last time we talked to you about the Pac-12, I was all in on Washington. Now I'm dropping them, man. I was so disappointed in their effort the other night that I thought that they were onto something, and then they just totally lay an egg. I mean, I was shocked. Yeah, I mean, that's the great thing about the competitiveness of the, of the conference. I mean, it's see, I think we get spoiled, and when we see such dominance, dominance, especially for, you know, you know, talked about on TV with the SEC and other conferences where you're just used to these teams winning. It's not that simple. It's hard to win on a competitive level. And any given day, it doesn't matter if it's Saturday, Sunday, Friday, Thursday, whatever it is, any given day, anybody can beat anyone. I've always believed that. If you don't have your A game, you'll get yourself smashed in the head. And that's exactly what happened when Washington went down to Stanford. So 
Who's the latest hot team that you really believe in? I mean, it's easy to look at the standings and say Oregon, but is it just we're just walking right over the trap door and we're going to fall through the floor the second we buy into the Ducks? That's exactly right, and that's why I've always been up in arms about preseason polls. You just don't know, especially when you get into the thick of things. There is no hot team. Everybody is vulnerable. It doesn't matter who you're talking about, whether it's, you know, a couple of weeks ago it was Arizona State, then Colorado beats them. I mean, it just doesn't matter. And it's going to go like that throughout the year, especially for this conference. And as an analyst, I appreciate it because it gives you more fodder to talk about. It gives you more stuff to be able to break down why this fell apart, why this team had a good day versus the other one that didn't. But as a fan and a national fan, it's hard to put in perspective because all you see is that these other teams knocking each other off here and there. You talk about Wazoo for a moment, you talk about Oregon for a moment, Washington for a moment, you go down south, you talk about SC for a moment, you talk about ASU, you talk about Utah, and and then all of a sudden they have a a premier national televised game and they end up getting beat. And so the national audience, you know, hits their hand on their head like, oh my gosh, they're not as good as as we thought they were. Let's turn this crap off, especially we're staying up late at night. But when all is said and done, however the dust settles on this conference, you're going to see two good teams that fought hard all season long that are going to play each other for the Pac-12 championship. And I hope, I hope that championship represents a little bit of a national prominence because it's just not going to be given to them. They're going to have to definitely earn it. So Washington State had to buy last week too, and we last saw Mike Leach after they just got destroyed by the Utes here in Salt Lake. He's talking about how his team, I think there was uh, fat, stupid, fat, happy, lazy, and, soft, and, 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 <laughs> exactly. and entitled. And it seems yeah. like when they win, Leach gets a ton of credit. When they lose, these guys suck. And as a former player, where do you stand on a coach coming out and saying what he says like that? In this day and age, you've got to be exceptionally uh, uh, careful, especially careful um, is a better choice, um, when you say this. I, I remember back in 2003 um, playing with the Raiders after we came back from the Super Bowl, and we had a very high-penalized game. Bill Callahan had a press conference. He was the head coach at the time, and he said, we've got to be the dumbest team in America. And in the locker room, I had several notable players, I won't remember mentioning her name, who just said, I'm done and they shut it down for the rest of the year. You have to be careful, because in this day and age, these athletes are especially sensitive to the words and, and what they see in the press and the way people you know, uh, associate themselves with, with one another. And I say that because you know, Wazoo is very capable of shutting it down, and we can laugh at the press. I mean, as a former Husky, I'll just say every day that they cooked it, they cooked it, they cooked it. But we also know that they had, a, they had an imperfect system where they seem like gangbusters, and, and before, late in the season, they fall apart. Well, that happens to quite a few teams. But most notably, you know, over the past couple of years, Wazoo, you know, Leach has got to be very careful. He's a smart man, a little bit odd, but he's a smart man um, And when he's addressing these things because if his team just turns, the notable players, the big key players, if they just turn around and be like, you know what, I'm done, I'm, I'm checking out, I'm just going to get through college and go my separate way, this can be a disastrous season for, for the Cougs. So I buy everything you just said there, but I also think he's right they should have never gotten outscored 50 to 14 by UCLA at the end of the game. They shouldn't have gotten outscored 24 to nothing by Utah at the end of the game. If they turn that around, you look at the way things set up. They lost to two teams in the South. If they right. were to not cougar, in your words, if they were to <laughs> if they were to do what the Utes did last year and 
start 0-2. If they were to win 6-7 of or if they were to win out, they'd need someone to give Oregon a loss. But other than that, they'd have the tiebreaker on everybody in the North. So it's not out of the realm to have them winning the North, given the way their schedule sets up, if they just get dialed in and stop rolling over when there's a little adversity in a game. Because if you just look at the scoreboard, even the most sensitive player would have to say, yeah, we got to be doing better than that. That was awful. Well, you're absolutely right. But just like most coaching decisions, whether whatever level you're talking about, when it works, you look like a genius. When you fail, you look like an ass. Simple as that. <laughs> and there it is. <laughs> and, and, and I totally agree with you. There's, there is there's something to be said when a coach comes out and addresses his team and says that we've got to be better, and it, and it is extremely critical of him. But at the same point, when you, watch the, when you watch how these players today most notably respond to social media, you've got guys who, who get in Twitter arguments with one another when somebody's criticized. You have to know that they're ultra-sensitive to these types of, uh, of criticisms. And, and, you know, I, I'm not in the locker room to where it's like, hey, man, let's overlook this. Let's pick it up. And I don't know if they have somebody in that locker room or in those locker rooms that would say that. But I've seen more times than not players cower and go the other way than respond to be like, take it as a challenge that I need to be better. So as far as the Utes going forward, you know, they had that clunker against SC, and then they played extremely well against Washington State. Tyler Huntley was right. brilliant. Then they have the bye. Now they got Oregon State this week, and I want your reaction to what I'm about to say. I don't think they're where they want to be because obviously you'd want to be 2-0 and and undefeated overall. But I'm, I'm thinking where they're right where they need to be, and they're still on track to win the South. My biggest criticism since we've been doing this stuff together for the Utes is how they finish in the month of October. You know what I mean? We've seen them fall apart, have everything lined up right where they want, and then for some reason at the end of October, you know, early November, whatever, however it goes, they fall apart or they drop one or two games that most people thought that they would win. I want to see how this team finishes. I think they're primed up. I think the bye week came at a very important time for them to get you know everything kind of sort of lined up and see where they are and and sort of refocus um, their their agenda for the you know the upcoming weeks. Um, but now I want to see how they finish. Um, one most notably against this game against Oregon State, I don't think they're going to have much of a problem. They should take care of business. But at the same point, don't under, underestimate the Beavers and don't take them lightly. Uh, because if they beat you, then you're going to be sitting there licking your wounds like, what happened? Were we overlooking whatever, whatever happens? That's the biggest thing that I worry about for the Utes. So you're watching some of these teams progress here. Are we missing a, a Cinderella out there somewhere who we didn't? I mean, if we're talking Utah and Oregon, well, there were pretty high expectations for them. Utah, right. Oregon, and Washington were the three teams that split the votes to win the conference. Right. Is there someone like an Arizona State uh, a Washington State that's off to a bad start, an ASU that's starting a young quarterback that could put together a Cinderella season. Maybe Arizona having won two conference games, although admittedly two teams we thought were in the bottom third of the conference. Yeah, I, I don't know if there's necessarily a Cinderella in this conference. I think there's potential for anyone to, to rise up. For example, you're not going to have Oregon State come out of the depths and all of a sudden be gangbusters in, in the north. And I, don't, I think the same thing about Arizona. I think you've seen some gritty play and some luck that would fall in the way of you know teams like A-State and Colorado here and there. But I don't really think there's a Cinderella that stands out to me like, oh, you know what, be on the lookout because this team is getting better as the week goes on. But yet, going back to what you said about having the two good teams play each other in the conference, I think the best shot 
for that in terms of getting some national respect right now, and maybe it changes, but just based on what I've seen so far, and we still have a, a fairly long way to go, I think for your goal to be accomplished, I think we've got to see Oregon versus Utah. I think that's the best matchup for the conference to get the biggest bang for the buck. Maybe ASU, if they found a way to run the table, but I don't think that's right. likely just because of the, the amount of attention that Herm Edwards always seems to bring is just off the charts. But I'm thinking it's got to be Oregon and Utah. I have no problem with that. I have no problem with that. My only thing is that whoever comes out of that game, whoever comes out and represents a Pac-12 champion, that when they get in the bowl game, they handle the business and they're competitive, whomever they're playing. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think that's that that's been a knock on these guys as a conference. That's exactly that right. Happened. So, so you know, like Washington in the Rose Bowl last year, or, or, you know, I'm, I'm speaking most specifically of the Huskies over the last couple of years. They played in the Rose Bowl. They played in the Fiesta Bowl. They played in the Peach Bowl. Those were all losses. Yeah. You see, you, you can't hold your conference up with high esteem if you can't win your bowl games because that's when you have the most national attention. And so even, even if I'm out here, and I believe conference championships are a high value. So if we get into an ultimate playoff system, I believe every conference champion should be represented like it is in bas- basketball. I don't care the record. If you win your conference, you've done something. So I believe that you should have a chance to play for a national title. With that being said, if I'm going to sit there and yell about conference championships, if you get out in a bowl game and you wet yourself or you get beat down like there's no tomorrow, where's the argument there? Lincoln Kennedy joined us here on 97.5 and 1280 The Zone. I want to get back to what you said about teams that kind of uh, can roll over on the coach. You told the story about, you know, when you were uh-huh. a writer and Bill Callahan and guys said, I'm done. Is that what's going on at UCLA? Because I watched the start of that Oregon State game. I had to edit the highlights for our Saturday night yeah. show, so that's the thing I'm watching. And to have 21 nothing after six minutes and one second. And, you know, Chip Kelly was part of the problem. He went for it on fourth down at his own, like, 35 or 40, and they gave the ball up. So that was part of it. But that's UCLA, come on. You're not good, and I've accepted that, but you're not that bad that Oregon State, who's been the worst team in the conference, can light you up like a Christmas tree and then continue to score throughout the game. Have they just rolled over on him? The level of consistency that you have, especially with young players, I've said this in in a number of interviews that I've done. I think in the future, UCLA, with the people they have on their roster, freshmen and sophomores can be good once they learn how to play with one another. That being said, you've seen how you know they could take Wazoo and put up basically a basketball score. Um, they get a lot of attention, and all of a sudden they start reading their press and feeling themselves. But they're still not really that good. They're, they're not complete with their offensive and defensive philosophies. Um, I don't think that they're rolling over, but I will say this, and we talked about this before, guys. I think there is a, uh, there is a lot of speculation in L.A. about Urban Meyer, and I think that goes for both L.A. schools. Um, what, from the grumblings that I've heard, I've heard that Chip Kelly's not necessarily happy at UCLA, that he's looking for bigger things. Um, and I've also heard that both schools are trying to court Urban Meyer to possibly coming back and representing, most notably SC. I don't know how much that is. These are just rumors and speculations that I've heard. So I don't know how much, how, how true, the, true they are. But I do understand if I heard them, and I live in Phoenix and I travel all over the country, you can imagine what the kids in LA have heard. So when you answer, ask the question, have they given up on him, if you, if you suspect that your coach is not going to be around, especially the coach that probably recruited you, uh, because we're talking about freshmen and sophomores, the younger guys, then why wouldn't you give up? Does that answer your point, answer your question? Yes, it does. Yeah. 
As always, we appreciate it, Lincoln. Good to have you back stateside. Glad to be back, guys. I appreciate my bet a lot more now. <laughs> Lincoln Kennedy, Pac-12 Network analyst and Oakland Raider analyst, back from that game in London. And we talk to Lincoln every week right here on 97.5 and 1280 The Zone. All right, DJ and PK, the NBA's in it, except for the people aren't saying anything. But then it turns out PK's looking at Twitter, and they're in it too. No comment. Irritate some people, PK. I hate no comment. We'll get to that next. DJ and PK, it's 97.5 and 1280 The Zone. Take the zone with you wherever you go. Let's go. Download the all-new Zone Sports Network app on your phone and get live streaming of the zone as well as podcast editions of every show. From Salt Lake to Shanghai, Provo to Portugal, or Ogden to Oslo, wherever you go, we'll tag along. Let's go. Download the new Zone app by searching Zone Sports Network wherever you shop for apps. It's the Zone Sports Network app. From 97.5, 1280, The Zone, and The Zone Sports Network. Um, actually, I don't. I mean, it's a, it's a really... It's a really bizarre international story, and um, a lot of us are, you know, don't know what to make of it. So um, it's, it's something I'm reading about, and uh, just like everybody is, but I'm not going to comment further. That's Steve Kerr right there, the Warriors coach, not commenting when asked about Hong Kong. Hong Kong. Bizarre. He's reading about it. Don't understand it. It's, well, it seems pretty clear-cut. He has opinions on a bunch of other stuff. He has opinions on Trump. Yeah. I mean, that's well, but also on race relations. On, I mean, he has opinions well, on yeah, multiple just, topics. Right, related to Trump. But he's not going to have an opinion on this one. I don't have any problem with him reading up on it before he comments, but the other side of it is, and I'm reading from someone from Twitter, you don't need to be an expert in Hong Kong to support free speech and oppose government-coerced censorship. I mean, you've been so outspoken. I mean, I know every stance you've got. In fact, you don't even need to speak on gun control because I know what you're going to say. I mean, I know what your opinions are. And yet on this, and the problem where it it looks bad is, and I don't know this to be true, but it's the perception, is that, well, there's a lot of money involved and this can affect my pocket, whereas the other stuff actually... You know, when I come out and speak, and the NBA is so woke, I'm more popular. I'm in alignment yeah. with what LeBron thinks, and so that's going to make me seem so, you know, really, I got it going on relative to my constituency. But here, when it could cost me or our league money, yeah, I don't really have a comment. We've already seen one league employee tweet about it and be rebuked by his owner. It's Houston's general manager and Houston's owner. Daryl Morey, the GM, had tweeted about it. Yeah, we're not into politics. Your league is into politics. The message is pretty clear to everybody else, whether an owner specifically says something to the coach or not. And now Adam Silver kind of seems to be straddling both sides a little bit. Probably caught him off guard. Didn't know the GM was going to tweet, and then all of a sudden it's on. Thinking about 20 other things. And now he's on a tour in Asia, and they got preseason games in China, and China's not going to televise a couple games, and they got bigger plans for China. And it's not just them, but their business partners. I mean, it's a whole web. Yeah. And China's having none of it. 
They're just shutting it down. Messages is clear from China. And you can all quiet down now. Right. <laughs> I don't know. What do people think? Well, Twitter, uh, bring this up because you just saw this on Twitter that Steve's getting, Steve's getting blasted pretty good. All the people who didn't like what they heard from him on whatever other topic, from the president to gun control to race to whatever, are uh, pointing out that now he's quiet. Yeah, speak away, Steve. I'm fine. I'm fine with you. Speak away. Let her rip. All right, DJ and PK. Kent joins us now from Technoglass. Kent, good morning. Good morning. A lot of traffic out there uh, this morning, guys. And sports fans, if you were driving in that traffic like I was and uh, noticed a crack in, in your windshield, uh, you're going to want to remember this number. Remember this number. It's 801-562-2200 because until noon today, Technoglass has an amazing uh, deal for all zone listeners. Now, it doesn't get any better than this, and it's not going to be forever. So you're going to want to call and take advantage of this. $99 windshields, you heard it right. $75 labor install, over 85% of the vehicles qualify. And it also comes with our lifetime national workmanship warranty. Now, to get your $99 windshield, all you have to do is call and schedule your appointment before noon. You don't have to get it done today. Just call and schedule it. Time that's convenient for you. $99 windshield, $75 install only until noon today. Call right now, 801-562-2200. That's 801-562-2200. Back to you guys. All right. Thanks a lot, Kent. Kent from Technoglass. Find him online at technoglass.com or you can call 801-562-2200.